The topic of our discourse Satya, this evening is uh, applications of concentration in samadhi in the meditation practice. As you will remember in our previous Satya discourse on Monday, uh, the topic was about uh, um, concentration in general, and today yeah, the emphasis will be in particular on practical applications. Now, just to briefly refresh our memory, so the opposite of concentration is what? A distraction, okay, good. And uh, now, maybe to you know, right away start uh, with an example here. While a retreatant is uh, um, attempting to observe the rising and falling movement of the foot near the abdomen, now then 50% of the focus is on the rise and fall, and another 50% is on. Hmm? <laughs> on wandering mind. And so, and so this happens actually quite frequently that retreatants certainly do not give a hundred percent of their focus um, to the predominant object that is certainly coming up pertinent for observation. So do consider this Satna on occasion, check whether you're 100% focused on an object or not. Now, concentration has been variously defined in, in a simple, you know, most simple way, as the one-pointedness of Fatna mind, and Satna then, you know, the Visuddhi Magga you know, states Satna you know, that Satna concentration, Ekagata, one-pointedness of mind. Its characteristic is the what? The non. A non-distraction of the mind, yes, that's correct. The non-distraction of the mind or the non-wandering of the mind. And the function of Fatna concentration is to distract the mind some more. What's that? Stabilize. To uh, unite or conglomerate Satna the mind. So um, you have 
a moment of consciousness and you have a, a number of different mental factors that will arise together with concentration. However, if those you know, different mental factors go off and do their own you know, thing, one does, one is concerned with the future, another one is certainly maybe concerned uh, you know, distracting you know, the mind, and certainly you know, then another one is busy you know, and uh, busy getting conceited. Well, you know, and your mindfulness uh, happens to be absent, you know, then you know, we can say the mind is not really uh, unified, not. You know, um, uh, there's no conglomeration of uh, the mind. So the associated mental states or mental factors, they all need to work together with um, uh, concentration. They all need to be you know, focused on one object of uh, observation at a time. And certainly, so, um, concentration as a mental factor brings about just you know, that. Now, such a concentrated mind, or unified, if you like to, mind could also be referred to as a collected mind or as a settled mind, a mind that is well focused. The term focus is actually good, pretty good because in photography, uh, or in other in some other in fields, you have to focus the uh, the uh, lens in certain such a way that certainly the object is certain uh, gets picked up nicely and in a clear cut manner. Now, concentration is manifested as peace and certainly the two approximate or nearest causes for the arising of concentration are for one thing happiness and another aspect is wise attention geared towards the development of concentration. Now, Sometimes illustrations very much help pertinent to bring across what uh, a particular mental factor is all about. Now, in the case of Ferdinand concentration, the following has come to mind. Namely, there, there is um, um, a very good certain retreatant who lives in Austria and she worked as a hospital lab technician for many years and her job was receiving a specimen from let's say a skin specimen or some other specimen from from a doctor taken from a patient and her job because the the physicians are of course very busy her job was to look through the microscope 
and certainly the respective specimen. And certainly then um, have a notepad ready and certainly then you know, to jot down all her observations with regard certainly to you know, the respective specimen. Now, just imagine this person, this lab you know, technician, you know, then would look at these specimens for many hours a day. So working hours are eight hours a day. And day in and day out, what do you think? What about her concentration? What? A very high. There you go. And when this person then came for repeated uh, intensive retreats um, to uh, Lumbini, her practice, well, or first of all, she had a, an amazing ability you know, to you know, be really focused on the rise and fall and other predominant objects, whatever the object uh, you know, might have been, and uh, you know, to observe in a really super detailed manner what happened from moment to moment to moment to moment. And so these years of working as a lab technician, looking through microscopes at various specimens, really helped her for the meditation practice. And she turned out, or she turned into a really good meditator. So when you sit in meditation with eyes closed and you observe a pain, think of that Satna retreatant and try to be just like her. <laughs> or if that illustration is not quite convincing yet, now what about a brain surgeon? Now, Imagine that you were a brain surgeon and suddenly the next surgery comes up. So some patient is there suffering from some serious, um, let's say from brain tumors. And so you have to undertake that sudden surgery. And so let's assume you have all the qualifications. And so now, when the time has come to do you know, the, uh, the, the brain surgery, then you want to be really distracted. You want to get into a fight with your uh, fellow physicians who are assisting during the surgery. Some verbal argument. Would that help? And not at all. So because in brain surgery, it is working on the brain, a highly sensitive area, the slightest mistake being cutting uh, in a place that is maybe slightly just a millimeter or so off another proper place might already have devastating consequences for the patient. So as a brain or a, as a brain you know, a surgeon one needs to be totally focused on you know, the job at and hand and not allow you know, the you know, mindset to get lost in other things a burmese you know, brain surgeon who uh, for many years worked in hong kong 
was certainly highly respected and ended up being the chief brain surgeon of all of Hong Kong. So not just at one hospital, but certainly for um, over you know overseeing many other um, brain surgeons as at other hospitals. He once stated what helped him a lot in his work during surgery is his his practice as a young man of meditation and certainly in particular of concentration meditation at the Shwedagon Pagoda in the Yangon Burma. So there's not a practical. Um, story. Um, now, there are certain professions that require extremely focused mind, and among you know, those, you know, we have uh, Formula One racing pilots, or here in America, it's more uh, Indy 500 racing pilots. And the slightest inattention, they might end up crashing into another car. Or the slightest inattention, driving at extremely high speeds, might result in well driving off the racing course. Or even more and even more vivid example would be that of a jet of a fighter jet pilot. Fighter jets are flying at extremely high speeds, Mach one and or Mach one and above at times, and if such a fighter jet pilot makes the slightest mistake, then this might certainly result in a um, in a crash. And I've once heard that these fighter jet pilots have just uh, just a fraction of a second to make some a major decision. If they don't get it right, you know, the plane might certainly crash. So, if the slightest distraction is there, the consequence could be terrible. Now, another example for a high requirement of a requirement of high concentration. And is the work of, uh, um, or, or the uh, the job of an interpreter or translator. If you think of uh, some uh, interpreter that uh, interprets professionally at certain one of these international meetings, let's say at the United Nations or the uh, European Union or at other places. These people need to be really focused. I know from my own experience, translating for Nevenerbosaido Upandita Biwamsa from Burmese into English, from English into Burmese, 
And so it is so demanding. You have to listen. You have to be a hundred percent focused on what he says, every single word. If you miss one word, or maybe even more than that, you know the uh, translation might already go wrong. And so, um, and then, so once the venerable had suddenly spoken, then you know, the time was there to give the translation. And the venerable side at the time, his English was good enough you know, to roughly understand the meaning of what uh, had been translated. So no way of uh, cutting corners and so on. Now, <laughs> and so then once the translation portion is over, you know, the next uh, Burmese portion comes. There's no time to rest uh, here whatsoever. Now, on occasion, I noticed that if because of some social friction prior to a Dhamma talk, the mind was a little bit certain agitated, I can guarantee you after the talk, after having, after all this concentration that was needed, all that social agitation was gone. And the mind was pretty, pretty focused. So it is a mental a quality that we all we all have the potential to develop it. It's just a matter of trying again and again. Now, the Visuddhi Magga speaks of obstructions to uh, in concentration, and um, it mentions ten of uh, those, namely, in brief, a dwelling, a family, and gain, a class, and building, two as fifth, and travel, kin, affliction, books, and supernormal powers. So ten. Now. Some of them are very obvious. A dwelling can be an impediment to one who has many belongings stored there or whose mind is caught up by some business connected with it. A family consisting of relatives or supporters becomes an impediment for one living in close association with its members. Then, when it comes to, especially to the monastics, who are dependent on others' uh, uh, support, one that might uh, uh, go in pursuit of fatnic gains and satna then uh, deliberately seeks uh, the association with lay supporters and satna that brings about uh, uh, or that certainly then qualifies as an obstruction. Or if um, you are on retreat, but certainly kind of not fully committed, you can't let go of your teaching require obligations. And so you try to do you know, both that namely intensive practice plus certain teaching well you know, this is not going to uh, work you know, all that certain well 
The same thing goes certainly for construction work. If one wants to meditate and set along the side that is responsible for a construction project, then this is clearly going to bring about plenty of distractions. Having to make arrangements for construction materials, having to ensure that the construction workers are all there, taking attendance, paying them, and then dealing with various difficulties that come along with this. Or a journey. A journey might certainly turn into a distraction because it leads to distracting thoughts prior to the journey, namely in the form of planning and certainly then as one is actually traveling. Or relatives could become a distraction, namely when they fall sick or some other responsibility might arise towards them. And then that again will take us away from our meditation practice or one's own affliction, so coming down with some bad cold or fever or whatever else it might be. And then Books and responsibilities around those, so writing responsibilities and writing, editing and the like, writing forwards, etc. And then finally, for those who have developed certain supernatural powers, well, the responsibility to maintain those. Now, when you look at most of these obstructions, or we could also refer to them as certain distractions, most of them concern what? Concern external things or internal things? External. There you go. Now, just like the Visuddhimagga presents us with this list of external, mostly external, obstructions or distractions, we can also say there are internal distractions. And again, to be as practice-oriented as possible. So, let's say you are observing one rising movement of the object. And at first, your mind is pretty focused. It does manage to be with the very beginning of the rising movement. It notices, let's say, a gradual start of it. It notices some softness and suddenly first, and suddenly then gradually now the rising movement picks up some speed and then it becomes a little bit unpleasant and then 
all of a sudden a moment of sloth and torpor is there and your mind simply says goodbye concentration and certainly so your rising movement will continue to unfold but certainly your mind is no longer concentrated at least for a moment or two so you notice fortunately uh, that uh, um, sloth and torpor is not everlasting and suddenly you um, so it disappears and suddenly then you're able to continue or maybe you have to uh, exert a little bit more effort and then you continue to observe that rising movement so the second half is still to come while you're observing the second half of your rising movement you notice now that gradually it's suddenly slowing down and suddenly the, the slightly painful character from earlier on is suddenly lessening and then all of a sudden uh, some thought pops up about sudden uh, a desire uh, about food so i wonder what uh, the kitchen will serve tomorrow for food now this is going to help your observation of the rising movement of the abdomen it's not and uh, if you're lucky you will notice this uh, the distraction right away and suddenly you'll manage to bring the attention back to you know, the original observation of the rising movement the end is not quite there yet and suddenly so, you know, then you continue and as the rising movement is approaching its uh, uh, its end but not quite reaching it all of a sudden uh, and uh, justifiably so all of a sudden you know, some thought of skeptical doubt of self-doubt arises do i have the ability to properly and observe objects i don't even manage to observe one single rising movement so you have start having doubts about your ability to be concentrated now this sudden will wreck the remaining part of your observation and so, so what becomes obvious suddenly from you know, this illustration here is that mm, hindrances sense desires a hindrance and sloth and torpor is a hindrance skeptical doubt is a you know, hindrance hindrances do interfere you know, with the actual observation of uh, an object and not only that what else do they do What do they do to your mind? Distract. Pardon me, they? They distract the mind. They agitate the mind. And uh, they hinder the functions, certainly the various functions of uh, the mind. And thus, one ends, thus we can speak of internal distractions or obstructions and certain among those we can name the five hindrances we could certainly further include 
wandering mind. We could further include, uh, let's say, uh, images that come up and you know, that are maybe very tempting. We could include what else? What else distracts us? Internal distractions. Memories. What's that? Memories. That's it, correct? Memories. Uh, even Dhamma reflections, yes, that's correct. Still some more? Emotions. What's that? Emotions. Imaginations? Yeah, emotions. Oh, oh, that's it. Actually, that's the one I also uh, had uh, already written down. So, strong emotions. So, one or the other you know, strong emotion comes up and we get totally entangled in it and certainly the observation of the early on predominant object of observation is totally forgotten and certainly even becomes impossible. Or what also sometimes happens for some retreatants, they simply just get lost in a story. The mind, one sits there and uh, the mind goes off uh, putting together some nice story. And it starts here at the forest refuge and then uh, sooner or later one finds oneself somewhere else in Australia maybe. Now, in a general manner, we, can, we could say that any of the mental defilements mm, could be considered to be an internal distraction. And a definition for you know, the mental defilements is certain as follows, namely, these are so the uh, farms are so called because they afflict or torment the mind, or because they defile beings by dragging them down to a mentally soiled and depraved condition. Now, to continue with fitness and uh, practical aspects, a retreatant or an advanced retreatant, when he or she is doing the walking meditation, such a person most likely will be totally absorbed in the walking practice that the retreatant is suddenly as if inside of a soap bubble, almost entirely oblivious to what happens around him or her hardly aware of certain of the other you know, retreatants who might certain, um, um, pass by. In the sitting meditation, 
hardly aware of um, retreatants, other retreatants coming into the meditation hall or leaving the meditation hall. There's so much absorption and so much focus on you know, the respective internal object of observation you know, that suddenly the mind is just uh, you know, not uh, picking up external uh, formations, uh, at least for a while. Now, this... Uh, state of being absorbed in you know, the practice can be taken to great certain heights and certain there is an, um, a description of an event or, or an, an event you know, that took pl place at the time of the Buddha you know, when uh, a monk stated described his degree of absorption, namely meditating, sitting close to a major highway with bullock curtain cards passing by one after another, and then saying that this monk didn't even hear those bullock cards driving by. And to this, if I remember correctly, the Buddha described his degree of absorption in saying that he'd be absorbed in the practice and not even hearing thunder. Now, we do not need, at least at this point, we do not need as yet that degree of absorption, but at least to show you, you know, the, the potential of uh, the mind. Now, when a distraction comes up, then what do we do? Pardon me? Noted, yes. Noted quickly, and suddenly then we try to bring our attention back to the respective object. And suddenly, if the mind time and again gets distracted, well, then time and again we have to recognize this and label it, observe it, know its nature, and bring the attention back to the primary object. Now, once we have managed to develop some degree of concentration in the practice, we are and we then use or apply this concentrated mind in our in the observation of predominant objects well then quite quickly we will come to understand the true nature of objects we might we might on occasion 
notice and this is outside of formal sitting meditation we might notice changes of of the weather what it's certain like in the morning the coolness the freshness of it and certainly then the brightness of certainly the sun and certainly then the absence of certain clouds and certainly the like and then in the course of certainly the day all of this certainly might certainly change and certainly some clouds might and come in the temperature that might certainly drop the wind that might certainly pick up in strength and certainly then the next certain thunderstorm um, happens or we can we might certainly notice um, changes in terms of uh, the plants um, certain uh, flowers um, blooming blossoming and certain blooming that we might at other times notice the withering of leaves and certain falling of the leaves to the ground and then the um, the decomposition of those certain leaves in our meditation practice we might certainly notice certain similar things or maybe in our own life at the first we might certainly notice changes over time changes in the course of decades our status when we were young and healthy and strong full of energy and our current status in the practice itself we might notice when we observe one pain from its very beginning through the middle we see that at first it's a hard pain and seems pretty compact as we keep observing it then gradually the pain starts breaking up into several chunks if we then focus our attention onto one of those certain chunks we do the mind tries to penetrate penetrate it then even that will start certainly breaking up if we then pick a smaller um, part of it and go into that even uh, there uh, even that might certainly break up but further and certainly that certain pain might certainly even change its certain quality from first being a very compact hard certain pain it might turn into um, into a burning pain and later into uh, a vibrating and pulsating pain etc and the intent in the course of the observation the intensity might increase might decrease and suddenly the pain for a while that might be there then absent then re-arising and so on and so forth we might certainly notice changes also 
with regard to pleasant pleasant bodily experiences so let's say some um, chill or thrill sensation is there and over it at first it's quite certainly intense and over time it certainly gets weaker and weaker now in regard to material formations the Buddha has spoken of the danger in the case of material form and a passage from the 13th discourse of the Majjhima section 19 states and what O retreatants, is the danger in the case of material form. Later on, one might see that same woman or man here at 80, 90 or 100 years, aged as crooked as a roof bracket, doubled up, supported by a walking stick, tottering, frail, and the youth all gone. Teeth broken, gray-haired, scanty-haired, bald, wrinkled, with limbs all blotchy. Now, what do you think, O oh retreatants? Has his or her former handsomeness uh, or uh, beauty and loveliness vanished and the danger become evident and what would you say yes or no yes and suddenly the bhikkhu and and the buddha then goes on to state this indeed is the danger in the case of material form Now, the untrained mind is certainly such that it has plenty of flaws and one of those certain flaws is certainly the perception of formations as being permanent, that's it. And certain when, in fact, a direct certain observation or direct investigation of certain formations um, as they occur in the body and the mind will uh, clearly tell us that formations are not permanent but rather impermanent. Now, this wrongful or flawed perception of formations as certainly being permanent is deeply instilled in the stream of consciousness and it takes certainly a fair a fair amount of practice to really uproot that and this is best done through a continuous focus of very collected an observation, concentrated observation of certain predominant objects. Now, 
not only are material formations undergoing change or changes, but the same thing also applies to mental formations. The calmness that certainly you may have experienced a few moments ago, and that was so pleasant, so agreeable, so desirable, it is no more. Or, the sharpness of your mindfulness that is present for a while, that too mm, undergoes changes, at times it gets weaker, at times it gets stronger again, at times it's gone altogether. When we look at certain formations, in particular at certain the feeling tone of formations, there too, we might notice quite certain some changes. On occasion, the feeling tone of an object might be pleasant. At another occasion, it might be unpleasant. Then it might be neutral, again unpleasant, and so on and so forth. It keeps certain changing. When we observe predominant physical and certain mental formations with mindfulness and uh, with a mindful and also a concentrated mind, a mind that further possesses uh, plenty of ardent energy, then uh, gradually we will uh, see the true nature of formations. We will see the very uh, impermanent uh, uh, nature of those formations. Now, over time, this initial understanding of impermanence will be refined even further. Namely, when a retreatant starts seeing formations as rapidly and clearly arising and passing, arising and passing, appearing and disappearing. That particular experience will make it even clearer that certain formations are everything but uh, permanent. Seeing in a very direct manner that certain physical formations are um, arising helps to helps to dispel the notion 
of or the the you know, the view of uh, annihilationism. And seeing the dissolution or the ending of Fatna formations over and over again will help Fatna to put and to let go of the wrongful view of the eternity that formations or that there is um, an eternity and formations that last uh, forever or that life that lasts uh, forever. Now, when having to some extent directly experienced this impermanence of formations, at times the rapid arising and passing of formations, then this may be good news under certain circumstances. Name me what kind of circumstances? Unpleasant. What's that? Unpleasant. Unpleasant. Oh, when encountering unpleasantness, yes, this is correct. Or to be maybe a bit more specific, when encountering pleasant, unpleasant pains, or when encountering difficult painful states. If you know from experience that all formations are impermanent and you are currently facing a pretty tough pain, then you can assume with some uh, or high degree of certainty that this pain sooner or later will break up. And so when having to deal with some uh, really unpleasant certain mental state, you don't quite know what to do with it. You can there too, with a high degree of certainty, assume that sooner or later that unpleasant mental state will break up. Now, despite of the fact that the most part of physical and mental formations keep changing, despite of this, as human beings, we have this underlying hope, that hope and view that certain aspects, certain objects, are more permanent, are maybe even uh, everlasting. Now, among those, what would you mention? 
Is there anything that is that seemingly, apparently, uh, seems a bit more permanent? There you go. That's uh, perfect. The perfect answer. So. When it comes to the self, the notion of the self, as human beings, we hold on to it so strongly. And there is a really strong underlying assumption that this self is somewhat uh, everlasting, permanent. It's the permanent entity that underlies everything else. Now, when we carefully investigate predominant certain formations and uh, we see that none of them has anything to do with a self and uh, when at times we even see the notion of a self coming up we might notice some self-referencing occurring and certain and then being mindful of this, sooner or later that passes away. So if we see that frequently enough, then gradually the notion of some permanency to you know, the self, that gets at least a bit shaken. There's yet another aspect, another object that we consider as certain pretty permanent. Consciousness. consciousness, that's the answer. Exactly. So consciousness, for most people, the assumption is there that this consciousness is Despite of all the impermanence that might be going on elsewhere, the consciousness is something permanent. And we attach our hopes to you know, this consciousness, let it be that permanent thing you know, that I can somehow or other you know, then hold on to. And what happens to that assumption or to that view? It gets, it falls away. Now, when one keeps observing the predominant objects and they keep seeing their impermanent nature and over time seeing in particular the ending of formations, the breaking up, the disintegration, the fading away of footnote formations, sooner or later a retreatant might notice that the, per the consciousness that was assumed to be so permanent, even this is nothing permanent. So there's no, we cannot speak of one continuous con everlasting consciousness, but rather you know, we realize Oh, the consciousness itself consists of moments of consciousness, one after another, passing away, passing away, etc. And that satna then will take care of this wrongful assumption of a permanent satna consciousness. 
It is in this and certain similar ways that in the course of carefully investigating predominant certain formations that retreatants more and more so get an understanding of the impermanent nature of formations, the impermanent nature of the objects certain to be observed, as well as the impermanent nature of the observing mind itself. In the course of Fadnirwan's meditation, that understanding will then lead or will replace the wrongful notion of a perception as certain impermanence, nietzsche sanya, through a correct certain perception of impermanence, anicca sanya, in the Pali scriptural language. And when our perceptions become corrected, again and again, or start becoming um, more realistic, then this will have an impact on consciousness. And consciousness that earlier on, based on um, the wrongful uh, perception of permanence, was accordingly influenced, wrongly influenced, now by seeing the impermanence of certain perception, this will then also change our consciousness, it will will rectify the perversions of consciousness, and this in turn then will contribute to um, the arising of right views. Now, ultimately, this mindful and very focused, so collected um, observation, concentrated observation of certain predominant formations will lead us to a point where sooner or later we will be observing some object, could be any object, we observe it really deeply and we see plenty of details, the mind is very very, very absorbed in the observation, is also very pure and at such a point the crossing over from mundane consciousness to supramundane consciousness might occur, especially when seeing the changes of formations. So at that point, it is while investigating the very characteristic of impermanence, anicca lacana, of whatever object is there, that suddenly then this crossing over from mundane consciousness to supermundane consciousness takes place. 
Now, a careful investigation of formations will then help us to understand that this contemplation discards the sign of perversion and so you know, this contemplation of impermanence becomes the door to emancipation termed contemplation of the signless. We will further come to understand from our direct experiences you know, that all formations are impermanent. And the Buddha has certainly spoken about this on many you know, different occasions as is you know, recorded in you know, the text. In one you know, text, namely a section from the third volume of the Samyutta Nikaya, section 195, he asks, what is impermanent? And Satna then, in short, the five, the five categories, so the five aggregates are impermanent. And then the next question asked is, in what sense are they impermanent? And the answer given to this, impermanent in the sense of rise and fall, udiya, uh, in the Pali uh, scriptural language. Now, the Surimaga uh, gives us the following a definition for impermanence, it says, impermanence of matter has the characteristic of complete breaking up. Its function is to make material instances subside. It is manifested as the destruction and falling away of formations. Its proximate cause is matter that is completely you know, breaking up. Another, uh, or well, the earlier uh, definition uh, given in different uh, language is uh, as follows. The characteristic of impermanence is the mode of rise and fall and change. In other words, reaching non-existence after having uh, come to be. Now, these uh, statements by uh, the Buddha starts making a lot of sense based on a very mindful and concentrated, focused, collected observation of predominant objects, observation and investigation of predominant objects. Allow me to conclude today's discourse by wishing me you be fully aware of you know, the external distractions and 
internal distractions you know, to the development of certain concentration, may you deal with them effectively and may the mind become increasingly focused and with this may you see the true or penetrate the true nature of formations and ultimately may the wisdom that arises may turn into liberating wisdom that Satna then uh, also uh, is termed as Satna Supramundane uh, wisdom, noble wisdom. And this is it for the discourse. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.